And so we come this morning to Zechariah chapter 8. I've been preaching through the book of Zechariah. That's our pattern. It's just to take a book of the Bible, read and preach, teach through it. Part of the reason we do that is so that I, as the pastor, can't pick and choose which my favorite passages in the Bible are. Because then you'll get a, uh, in, you'll get a, a biased view of the Bible. We just we want to read through it. That means we come to sections that maybe are a little uncomfortable. We face it and we look at it. We come this morning to the middle of a series of messages given to the people of Israel and Judah about 520 years before the birth of Christ. So we're going back this morning over 2,500 years. And and at this point, Jerusalem, the city, is largely a a pile of rubble. The Babylonians had conquered uh, Jerusalem about 85 years earlier. They had left the city and demolished. They had torn down the temple. Now, 70 years later, or about 85 years later since that happened, a small group, a remnant of Jews, Israelites, have returned from exile. They've come back to the area of Jerusalem, and they have begun the process of rebuilding the temple. And the temple at that time was the place where God met with his people. That was the place where God was worshipped. And so God raised up two prophets, two preachers, Haggai and Zechariah, to give to the people a series of messages to encourage them to get back to the work of rebuilding the temple. So we come this morning to Zechariah chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 17. Now, one more way of introduction I'm reading this morning from a, a, a version, a more recent version called the Legacy Standard Version. Um, Some of you have some different English translations, which are very good. Um, But I like this translation, this more recent one, because it translates the Hebrew name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh is personal. Uh, Some of you have the title Lord. Well, Lord is a title. Uh, Yahweh is God's personal name. It's like the difference between your role. Uh, If you're a mom or a dad, that's your role, your function, and then your name, your personal name. And Yahweh in the Old Testament is God's personal covenant name with his people. And I'm reading from this version, I'm, I'm risking, because I know it strikes some of you a little weird. If, if you come in this morning and you're new to the church, you're thinking, now, did we, did we look at the sign on the, is this a Christian church? <laughs> right? Yes, this is a Christian church. Um, and, uh, but it's helpful because you'll see how prominent the name of the Lord, this phrase, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, is in the passage. So with that, let me begin in verse 9. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days, to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in that day, that the foundation of the house of Yahweh of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for animal, and for him who went out or came in there was no peace because of the adversary, and I set all men one against another. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in former days, declares Yahweh of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed, The vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. And it will be that just as you were a curse among the nations, 
O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, just as I purposed to bring about evil to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says Yahweh of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love false oaths. For these, all these are what I hate, declares Yahweh. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pause and let's pray one more time and just briefly ask God to help us to understand these ancient words. So God, we have come with open hearts. We're interested in what your Bible has to say. But we're very aware, even as we read this passage this morning, that we're removed by thousands of years. Um, that the exact circumstances are maybe unfamiliar to us. We're here this morning and we go to Walmart and Home Depot and Market Basket, various grocery stores. We, we have different concerns. And so here we are this morning in 2024, and it's tempting for us to think that this ancient word has no relevance. I pray, God, this morning that you would show us that, that your word is always relevant and bring its power to bear upon our lives. Even today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ, Christians, we're not called in the New Testament since Christ has come, the Son of God, and since he has died for our sins. We're not called to build an actual physical temple. Um, There's work going on on this building, and you'll see that both now and in the months and probably year, years to come. We have work going on behind me in, in that room. We we recognize that uh, the driveway out there is kind of muddy this morning as you were coming through, slogging through the mud. And, you know, there's bathrooms that have been recently finished, but we're still, you know, finishing up some things. We, we understand that, yeah, there's some physical work going on here. But we also understand as Christians, this, is, this church building is, is simply a meeting place for God's people to meet. You are now, as Christians, the temple. You are the people of God. You are the house that God is building. So our work is not primarily physical. Our work is primarily spiritual. It is encouraging one another. It is loving one another. It is knowing God. It is, it is doing what you're doing this morning, meeting to worship God so that God is publicly worshipped and God is publicly praised. Our work is different than the immediate task of that generation in Zechariah's day that had to build the temple But some of the discouragements and frustrations are the same. As Christians, we see the church today often filled with confusion. Many of you have known the heartache of of having a church experience that, that was far from what the Bible tells us it ought to be, where there's love and unity and truth and so forth. And then there's just the reality of living in this fallen, broken world. All of us in our lives have a lot of 
discouragements. We have a lot of things that can weigh on our hearts and, and render us basically ineffective or unable to rouse ourselves, to give ourselves to doing the Lord's work. But we are, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight in the New Testament, to always be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's amazing. And Paul wrote that not just to Timothy or to Titus, the pastors. Paul wrote that to every believer in that church in Corinth at that time. Probably assembly of believers not all that different than us. They had some more trouble than we do presently. Uh, They had a lot of issues in that church. But he wrote that to every single believer in that church, that every single one of them was to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Can I ask you, Christian, right at the front of this message, is that how you think about your life? What is the work of the Lord that you are to be about? Because it's not just for the pastors. Yes, we're bringing on a, an associate pastor, but, but he's not going to do your work, and I'm not going to do your work. I know what my work is, and, but each one of us has work to do. What is that work? Well, our work is, first as Christians, to be centered around the local church. Most of the New Testament is written to believers talking about how they are to think about other Christians and how they are to participate and support the, the local church, a church like this, where the Bible is taught, where Jesus is preached. We are to love one another, and that's work. Because the one reality about a biblical church is that you come into a biblical church and the people aren't like you. They're different. Why? Because there's this really, to some of us in our flesh, this really frustrating reality that Jesus just doesn't save people that are like us, go figure, but that he's saving men and women, sinners like us, of all types, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ages, all kinds of preferences, all kinds of different personalities, all kinds of different baggage, and he's saving all kinds of people like that, and then he's bringing us together, and he's putting us together under the common experience of his grace, and he's saying, now, I want you to be my people, and I want you to love one another and we look at each other sometimes. I mean, maybe you, you don't. I, I know you find loving one another to be very easy. You've, you've never met a Christian that's hard to love. But, you know, some people might find it difficult from time to time. And Jesus calls us and he says, I want you to work on this. This is the work. It's work. I want you to think of. I want you to serve. I want you to call. I want you to email. I want you to text an encouragement. I want you to do this work. I want you to love one another. We are told in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to speak the truth and to grow into Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's a building project going on here, brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's not primarily the structure. It's you. And it's every man and woman, boy and girl, who comes through the doors that Christ is adding to the church. That's the work, primarily, firstly. And with that, of course, then, there is in our lives, as we go from this place, from meeting together, we go out to the world and we do the work of representing Jesus accurately. That means we work on ourselves. We, we, 
confess our sins. That means we learn what's pleasing to God. We turn from what's displeasing. It means we go to our workplace, and in our workplace, we're characterized among our co-workers as someone who is a faithful, trustworthy, loyal, hard-working person. They see our character. They see our kindness. They see someone in us who's compassionate and forgiving of others, and they ask why, and the answer is when we tell them it's because, oh, because I'm a great sinner, and there's someone who's forgiven me of a lot, and that's God, and Jesus has died for my sins. So we, we work here and we work out there wherever we go. We work in our families. We work in our, our, our workplaces, in our schools. But we do the work of the Lord. And the reality is, as we go about that work, we can become discouraged. We can become discouraged and disheartened. Um, I can become disheartened and discouraged. Being a pastor these days is not easy. You're not easy to herd. I mean, shepherd. I mean, you've got all kinds of different ideas, all kinds of different spiritual ailments, and it's challenging. Um, but I can't give up. Why? We were going to learn this morning why. Why you can't give up. I'm not allowed to. But isn't it so kind that in his word, God gives us encouragements? The people in Zechariah's day needed encouragement. They had reason to be discouraged. God had asked, called them, commanded them to start rebuilding the temple. But not only was it a physically demanding project, I mean, they're building a temple in the midst of a rubble pile, but they're surrounded by enemies who are discouraging them. And, and we need to remember that they have the same kind of challenges that we have because they were a bunch of sinners trying to work together to do something. And they had different ideas, and they had different personalities, and some people didn't work well together, and some people got at each other, and some people had a background with each other, and all these kinds of things, and they had difficulty organizing, and on and on and on it goes. Welcome to life under the sun. God knew that, and yet he was calling them, I want you to get to the work of rebuilding my temple. In spite of all of the conflict, of all the difficulties, of all the... They had needs in their own lives. They were rebuilding their own houses. Things were not all easy. They literally were building their own homes while they were called upon to build the work, do the work of the Lord. And they were discouraged. And so God sends to them a series of messages through Zechariah to encourage them into the work. And here's, here's the message this morning in Zechariah 8, the passage we've read. Give yourself anew to God's work in God's way. Give yourself, Christian, to God's anew, to God's work in God's way. In other words, God's calling us to renew our commitment and our effort this morning. And I don't know if anybody else needs this, but I confess to you I needed this this week. I'll just tell you, I want to just, I don't often tell you, you know, what's going on in my mind during the week as I'm studying, but there was a point on Wednesday, Thursday, and I thought, ah, I don't really know that this passage, Zechariah, is exactly the right passage for this Sunday. You know, there's a lot of newer folks, maybe there's some other things I could talk about and, and so forth. I know some people are going to think that this is kind of ancient and, you know, and so forth, and I'm not sure why this text, and then it hit me. Gabe, you're being called to give yourself anew to the work. Oh, 
Okay. So this message is for me if it's not for anybody else. You can listen in, okay? I, I just one, I, I have a brief, don't worry. I know I have a, this is a long introduction. Some of you are getting nervous. But I, I want you to, un, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to help you see that this ancient word is every bit relevant for us this morning. And I, I have an interesting fact for you. I think this will surprise some of you. You didn't see this coming. I've read this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul, in that wonderful letter to the church in Ephesus, how many of us who are Christians, we love that letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Wonderful New Testament letter. Some of you have done a study on Ephesians. And and we know that Ephesians 4 talks about the church of Christ and its one body. And I just read this passage in verse 16 that says that we are to work for the growth of the body, for the building up of itself in love. But in Ephesians 4.25, in Ephesians 4.25, Paul's there and he's writing this letter to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, let's say uh, roughly 600 years after Zechariah wrote this. And he's thinking of the church in Ephesus. And of all the things he can write to them, encourage them in their work of the building up of the body of love, it's going to shock you. Do you know what he did, among other things? He quoted from Zechariah chapter 8 in Ephesians 4. Some of you have never seen that before. But in Zechariah, that's what he does in Ephesians 4.25. That phrase in Ephesians 4.25, speak the truth to one another. That is taken from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. Wow. Wow, that's how relevant Paul thought Zechariah was. It, was, it had a passage, and he, and he quotes from it to the Ephesians in their church work. And I want to press you a little bit this morning. Is that how you were thinking about Zechariah 8? Were you thinking it's that relevant to the church today? Because that's how Paul thinks about it. And that's what Paul means when he wrote to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. All scripture, including Zechariah 8. So I just want to raise your estimation of these Old Testament prophet passages. If the Apostle Paul, when he was thinking about the building of a local church, his mind wandered to Zechariah chapter 8 and he could quote from it, maybe our estimation needs to go up a little bit. So I want to share with you this morning briefly three reasons or motives to give ourselves to God's work in God's way. I say God's work in God's way because that's what God's work, he's he's exhorting them to get about the work of building. And then he's telling them, hey, I want you to do this in a truthful way. You are to judge with truth and you are to speak the truth. All right. So, so we can't just do God's work any way we want. It has to be his way. Three motives. First, God knows the past, present, and future difficulties. God knows the past, present, and future difficulties that we face. Um, that's an encouragement. As God calls us to do his work, to serve Jesus Christ, he knows how tough it's been for us in the past. He knows how tough it is in the present. And he knows how tough it's going to be in the future. 
And you say, well, how's that encouraging? Well, think about it. If someone's asking you to do something and it's really hard and it means tears or effort on your part, sorrows, if it means denying yourself, if it means cost on your part, and if you have a sense that the higher ups have no idea how hard it is, that just absolutely deflates your motivation. If you're in the military and you have a sense that you're being sent into conflict, into a very dangerous zone, and the, the generals or the bureaucrats have no idea how dangerous it is and don't really care what difficulties you're facing, that's going to completely deflate morale. In your company, if you are an employee and you're being asked to do something that's very difficult, that maybe goes above and beyond your normal expectations of what a job should be, and you pick up on the fact that your boss or the owner of the company really has no appreciation for how hard it is, he's maybe never done it himself, doesn't really know what it is to sit there or to walk there or to talk to that person, it's going to completely discourage you from giving yourself because you're going to have a sense the person who's asking me to do this actually has no idea how hard this is. But God is not like that. God is not like that. Christ is not like that. We already sang this morning, as I pointed out to you in that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, that Christ is acquainted with every grief that can wring the human breast. Maybe old language, but the language means Jesus. There's not one of us this morning here. There's no difficulty we've been through, no heartache or sorrow or danger or anxiety that we can possibly come up with that one of us can say Jesus doesn't really know what it's like. Not possible. Not only because he's God the Son and he knows you, but because when he lived on this earth and the sorrow and the loneliness that he went through and the trials that he faced, there's none of us that can say we know what that was like. He has suffered like no man has ever suffered. And not just on the cross. He suffered in ways that we will never comprehend and understand he knows how hard this is. Think about it. Jesus' entire ministry. I mean, he was healing people. He was he's the best preacher that ever walked the face of the earth. You couldn't say after one of Jesus' sermons or teaching sessions, you know, boy, you know, I'm not sure if he was really on today. I'm not sure that was really clear. Maybe he could have illustrated that a little bit better. I mean, no one ever said that. He's absolutely perfect preacher, teacher. He's healing people. He's, and, and when he's tired and exhausted, he doesn't fly off the handle. He's always kind. He's always patient. He never sins. And yet, think about it. Before he was crucified, he essentially had a handful of followers. Nobody believed him. It seemed like he was a complete and utter failure. And it was exasperating to work with the 12 guys that, that he chose. And he chose them knowing full well, full well the material he had to work with. And they just couldn't learn. Jesus knew what it was to be discouraged in the work. Things did not go easy for him. He knows. And he knows what it's been like for us. He knew what it was like for the people of Israel. Why do I, where am I getting this from in Zechariah chapter 8? 
in verse 10, God says, before those days. He's looking right now. When Zechariah is preaching here, he's looking back 15 years earlier to when they started rebuilding the temple. And in those days, and actually before those days, before the rebuilding of the temple, the people were scattered. The people were discouraged. They were not unified. They were ruled over by cruel tyrants. There was no unity. There was no will. There were no resources for the work. That was their past. And, and, then you, you, and then they were faced with various adversaries who were trying to undermine the work. And now in the present, it's difficult. They've got their own houses to work on. They've got their own problems. And God is calling them to give his work the first priority. And it's not easy working with each other. And then, then wouldn't you know it that this temple, by the way, that God is calling them to rebuild and they will rebuild? And we learn about in the Old Testament, there will be celebrations when it is completed. God knows even now when he's calling them to rebuild this second temple, that this second temple is also going to be destroyed in the future. And it was. It's not around anymore. And we say, oh God, you're calling them to build a temple that you know in the future is going to be destroyed again? Yes. Because God knew he had a purpose and an immediate purpose was for his praise and for his worship. But Ultimately, all of God's work, when he calls us to work, it's for his honor and for his glory. He knew exactly what he was calling them to. And this ought to encourage us. Our tendency is like the people in Haggai's and Zechariah's day. Our tendency is to say what the people said. In Haggai, that's the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament, the Lord said, he quoted the people. He said, this people, he's talking about the people of Israel at that time, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. That was word on the street. Not not good timing. Not good timing. There's some of us Christians here this morning. uh, It hasn't been right timing for a long time. Right? One thing after another. One inconvenience after another. One project after another. Whatever it may be. Um... And God's heard that. And in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, God doesn't say, oh, the people are saying this isn't the right time, and you know I agree. <laughs> he doesn't agree. Now's the right time. Now is the right time. Now is the time to do the work of the Lord. There are plans to be made. In that day, there were funds to be raised, gifts to be given, workers to be paid, conversations to be had, Conflicts to be addressed among workers, prayers to be lifted up to God, worship to be offered, on and on it goes. There's plenty of work. And whatever the season, whatever the work is in our particular sphere, whatever our particular contribution is to the Lord's work, we are not to fear that our labor is in vain. God knows our past, present, and future difficulties. And still, we are told in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight to be steadfast, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I find it remarkable, remarkable that, actually, I didn't plan on this. Hold on. I don't usually show illustrations. Hold on one minute. I'm gonna, I gotta get a Bible, another Bible. Wait, I'm not disappearing.
I, I didn't even think of this. I brought this up for Sunday school class. Um, this is an NIV study Bible that my grandfather, who was a missionary in the Amazon jungle in the early 50s, and my grandfather, who was a pastor um, and went home to be with the Lord, his funeral was the first funeral I ever led as a newly ordained pastor, young, young guy, 20-plus years ago. And uh, my grandfather was very sick when, when he gave me this Bible. We were down in New Jersey where our, our family would meet. Um, and where uh, we would meet for vacation. And my grandfather, before he died, wanted to give me a Bible. And of all the verses that he could write on the inside, my grandfather wrote in very weak handwriting. By that point, he was pretty sick. May God's richest blessing rest on you as you serve him. Always remember, let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 58. And uh, I didn't plan on this. The Lord just planned on this. I haven't had this Bible in here for years. We have work to do. And it's hard. But we're called to do it. And God knows our present, our past, and our future difficulties. But we are to serve knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are to give ourselves fully, as my grandfather wrote there, the older translation, to the work of the Lord. Well, a second reason, quickly, that we should give ourselves anew to God's work and God's way is, secondly, is the fact that God provides seasons of blessing and harvest. God provides seasons of blessings and harvest. There are seasons in God's work. In verse 10, God, again, talked about prior times when things were difficult. He recognizes that it was very hard to get anything done. And, and more than that, God, at the end of verse 10, this is shocking, it was a form of judgment upon the people in those days. He said, I'm the one who set men against one another. Wow. In other words, God was the one in his judgment upon Israel at that time who was causing some of the division because it was a form of judgment. And it's a reminder that as we face frustration in the church and the churches in our day and face different difficulties, one of the factors we might want to keep in mind is that sometimes as we serve the Lord earnestly and sincerely, sometimes we are serving in a time when God is also at the same time judging his people. And I, I believe I'm, I'm serving in such a time. I'm serving in a context in which I believe Jesus is calling the church largely to repent. And is knocking on the door and seeing if anybody's home. What that means is, is that in addition to just serving the Lord in this world, I'm serving the Lord in a season in which God is maybe not blessing as he has in the past. However, because of God's merciful character, he does give seasons of refreshing. 
And God says in verse 11 to the people of Israel, but now I will not treat the remnant of his people as in former days. But now, and all I'm pointing out to you is that there was a time when, when in the providence of God, there was a season in which work was particularly difficult. And no matter what you did, you weren't going to see a lot of fruit. But now, when Zechariah is preaching, this is a unique season when God is going to bless the people. He's going to give them unity. There's going to be essentially a revival in Israel and Judah. And that's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that our God, excuse me, our God and his character, that he is so merciful that it very well may be that as we serve him, and likely I should say, that in our lifetime of service, He's going to give us seasons of blessing and harvest. What I mean by that, that as we labor under difficult circumstances, there are going to be times when he allows us to see his spirit at work in power. Thirdly and finally this morning, a third motive. God will bring about promised blessing upon all nations. This is a longer point, okay, if you're taking notes. But in verses 12 through 15, we learn God will bring about his promised blessings to all nations on earth through the restoration of Israel and Judah. This original passage has a particular reference to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, to the people inhabitants of Jerusalem. And everybody in Zechariah's day knew who the house of Israel was. That was if you were descended from the ten northern tribes Uh, In the north, if you were from the house of Judah, you were from the kingdom of the south where David had been king. Everybody knew what Jerusalem was. It was a city with inhabitants, the capital city. And God promises in verses 12 and following that just as God has judged the people of Israel in the past, just as verse 13, they have been a curse among the nations. And that is true to this day. And just go check the news this morning. And the world's attention is riveted on a tiny little geographical spot in, on earth called Israel. And of course, Gaza, just to the south of it. The world hates the Jewish people. And I'm not saying that Israel, the modern state, is, is innocent in all of its dealings. It's a modern secular nation. But it is undeniable that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the most hated and most persecuted people on the face of the earth. And that is because they are identified with God and Satan, the evil spirit. He hates these people. And they have endured great sorrow, great sufferings. But God says that just as he's judged them in the past, and and he's going to again in the future... There are difficult days ahead, but God says that he's going to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, verse 15. He's going to do good. He's going to make them a blessing, verse 13, that you may become a blessing. They are not considered a blessing to the world at this present time, but they are going to be. God is going to restore Israel and Judah in the last days. Christ Jesus will be king over a restored and renewed Israel and Judah. But the purpose of that is not just Israel and Judah, but what God said all along when he promised to Abram from Ur in the first place that through his descendants he would be a blessing to 
all nations. That's the plan, is that through Israel and Judah, through Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, that God will one day cause his kingdom literally to come on earth. And as we read this morning in Psalm 98, God's kingdom will be on earth. There will no longer be any evil, no longer any sorrow, no longer any injustice. This is what God has declared will come to pass. And it is a wonderful message. The time of conflict is coming to an end. And there will be a day when God renews Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And that time is not yet, but it's coming. And you say, what do I have to do with that? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you could be transported to the future, you can't. But if you could this morning, if right now you could be transported into the future, and if with your resurrected eyes you could see, and with your resurrected ears you could hear the joy of the millennial Jerusalem with Christ. You could see with your eyes glorified Christ on the throne there. And if you could see the peace of Jerusalem, if you could see a remnant of Jews saved and restored, and if you could see the nations coming and streaming into Jerusalem to worship God in Christ, that would stir your heart to serve the Lord right now. That would stir your heart right now to serve him. Because you would think, even if I give myself for the Lord, and even if my little lifetime, I don't see much fruit from it, I have the privilege of being associated with that? Are you kidding me? I get to serve that king? I get to serve in the name of that king, and I get to contribute to the building up of that kingdom? Not physical now, right? It's not a physical kingdom now. It's a spiritual kingdom now. And the church is the physical expression of the kingdom of Christ on earth now. But as you are serving Christ, you get to contribute to that now. That's what stirs us up to work. Increasingly, I'll just tell you, that's what motivates me. That's what motivates me. I have no idea what's going to happen in the future in terms of the church. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. I pray, and I hope that you're blessed. I pray that the church is built up. I don't know if the church is going to grow. I don't know if the church is going to shrink. I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not a prophet. I've pastored a church that split and closed. No one would have seen that coming. So I have no guarantee as to what will happen in my little lifetime of ministry. I don't know that. I have wonderful hopes, and they are sincere, and I have reason for them because of what I see in you. But I don't have any guarantee of what God's going to do. But what I do know is the things I'm learning here in the Bible, they're coming. And I get to serve that king. And on that day when I'm in his presence, I will have counted it an honor that I had the privilege of serving him in this place, in this time, in this culture. And the same is true of you. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for these motivations to serve you. Thank you for the privilege of rather the comfort of knowing that you know how difficult our lives and service can be. I pray this morning if there are among us uh, Christians, believers, who have become discouraged and given up on the church, maybe just kind of thrown in the towel, and like Peter when he said, I'm going to go back to fishing. I pray this morning that your word would stir us up to remember. You know the way in which we walk. You know where we live. You know every heartache we've seen and will see. And yet you still call us to be abounding, abounding in your work. 
Heal our wounds, we pray. Encourage those who are hobbled by the discouragements of this life. Strengthen us, strengthen our hands, strengthen our weak knees. Stiffen our backbone, we pray. And set our faces with hope and determination to serve you in every circumstances, no, circumstance, no matter what. Because you're the one who's calling us to not be afraid and to work for you. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.